Uh, many Republican voters will tell you that they feel like the country being, that they grew up in is being taken away from them. That's a very threatening thing. That's not just disagreeing over tax policy or disagreeing over, your, uh, over health reform. This is feeling like the, your country is being taken from you. Um, and so that's, that's what I think the best scholarship on, that I've seen on, on American politics suggests is at the root of this polarization. Now, it's exacerbated by income inequality. The Rational View is a weekly series hosted by me, Dr. Alan Scott, providing a rational, evidence-based perspective addressing important societal issues. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Rational View. I'll be your host, Dr. Al Scott. In this episode, this is how liberty dies. Are we witnessing the end of liberal democracy as we know it? I'd like to explore how republics and democratic societies fail. You may recall from the Star Wars series, Senator Padme Amidala's famous quote as the emperor is elected for life. This is how liberty dies, with thunderous applause. Could the USA, the bastion of freedom and democracy, fall to tyranny? This is particularly relevant today, I think, when the populist leader of the most prominent bastion of liberal democracy is floating a delayed election in response to the COVID-19 epidemic, inciting his followers to violence against protesters and boosting QAnon conspiracy theories that cast his opponents as pedophiles who eat children. What are the similarities between our seemingly unique situation and the fall of other uh, democratic societies? In this episode, to get to the bottom of this question, I've decided to interview one of the authors of the best-selling book, How Democracies Die, to get his input on the current troubling situation in the U.S. As always, uh, if you enjoy my content, please hit like. Uh, please follow me and subscribe on your podcast app. Provide a comment. Uh, I'd love to hear your feedback and share this episode with your friends. If you want responses from me, uh, feel free to join my Facebook page at Al Scott Rational. Now today, I'm welcoming Professor Stephen R. Levitsky to the podcast. Dr. Levitsky is the David Rockefeller Professor of Latin American Studies and Professor of Government and Director of the David Rockefeller Center for Latin American Studies at Harvard University. His research focuses on democratization and authoritarianism, political parties, and weak and informal institutions, mostly in Latin America. He is co-author with Daniel Ziblatt of How Democracies Die, published in 2018, which was a New York Times bestseller and has been published in 22 languages. He is also the author of many books regarding politics and authoritarianism in Latin America. He is currently writing a book with Luca Nguyen on the durability of revolutionary regimes. Dr. Levitsky has also written for the New York Times, Foreign Affairs, Vox, The New Republic, and The Monkey Cage, and he has written regular columns in La República of Peru and Folha do Sao Paulo in Brazil. Dr. Levitsky, welcome to The Rational View. Thanks. It's good to meet you. Good to meet you as well, and thanks for coming on my show. Happy could, you, to be here. could you please tell me a little bit about your background and how you came to be interested in Latin American governments? I got interested in Latin America because during the, um, when, I, when I was growing up, my high school and college years 
Central America were front page. It was was a front page set of issues in in the United States. This was the mid 1980s. There had just been a revolution in Nicaragua. There were civil wars going on in Guatemala and El Salvador. The U.S. was centrally involved in those. So I got involved initially as uh, as an activist, as a critic of the Reagan administration's policies in Central America. And from there, I uh, went to college, took a couple of classes, had an opportunity to travel to Central America, and just fell in love with Latin America 30 years ago and still going. Ah, very interesting. So in this interview, I'd like to explore your book, How Democracies Die, uh, where you explore the current state of the U.S. political system. I'd like to understand... What parallels do you see between the current state of U.S. politics and historical failures of democracy? Um, there are a number of parallels you could draw. I think the, the most important, the most central one is um, the consequences of extreme polarization. Um, we know that one of the things that kills democracy, not, not, not a, a huge number of established democracies have died in the world. You can count on a couple of hands, the, the number of really well-established democracies that have, that have broken down. Um, but looking around uh, Uruguay in the early 1970s, Chile in the early 1970s, Spain and Germany, they were not really very established democracies, but, but European democracies that, that broke down in the 30s, almost all of them were ripped apart by extreme polarization. And that is um, something that has kind of surprised scholars here in the United States, but, but polarization um, has gotten quite extreme over the last 10, 15 years in the U.S. This is one of the things uh, I made this podcast for, is to combat what I see as a growing polarization between two different sides, especially in the online social media debate. It's become a circus of, of throwing barbs and weaponized memes back and forth without really engaging. And I think this engagement uh, from both sides of an issue is the lifeblood of democracy. I feel like the systemic inequality and income inequality that we're seeing that has built up over the years are driving unrest in the civilized world. I see a loss of hope and the rise of nihilism on both sides of the divide. There, there's violent protests, there's extremist nutcases who just want to watch the world burn. People that feel disenfranchised in society just seem to want to break the system. Why are people so highly polarized today? Uh, that is a great question, and um, I think that you pointed to one of them. You pointed to income inequality, which is uh, income inequality and um, income inequality has increased, and social mobility has declined considerably. The ability of people to, really, for the first time uh, in anybody's living memory, uh, people's kids are not don't have the same prospects that they had, which in the United States is almost unthinkable. This this rise in inequality has uh, is observable across the Western industrialized world. It's a bit, it, it's, it's worse in the U.S. than in some European social democracies, but it's, it's, a, it's a common factor across the, uh, the industrialized West. I think another factor, though, um, and almost certainly more important in the U.S. is, um, is race and the response to mm. growing racial diversity um, and racial equality. The, the, the polarization, the partisan polarization in the United States, most scholars of U.S. politics trace its origins to the, the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, mid-60s, 
which began the partisan realignment, which began to shift Southern conservative voters from the Democratic Party to the Republican Party. Um, and that, that sort of began the process of polarization. What, where we, there is almost no class difference in, in the vote anymore between Democrats and Republicans, between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. There's, there's virtually no difference in the income level of the average voter. Hmm. The, the Trump voter was slightly, slightly wealthier than the, the average Clinton voter, but it's a very weak relationship. What the, the real distinguishing factor between uh, Democrats and Republicans these days is, uh, is, is race and culture. If you are um, white, not college educated and religious, you're almost certain to be Republican. Uh, if you are urban, uh, secular, and non-white, you're almost certain to be Democrat. And um, the, the reason that's polarizing, that doesn't have to be polarizing, but the reason it's polarizing, I think, is uh, that we're going through a really distinctive, almost unique phenomenon or process in the United States, which is that a previously dominant ethnic group or previous, previously dominant cultural group is losing its majority status in, in two senses. It's losing its electoral majority, it's losing its, its yeah. numerical majority, but it's also losing its dominant status in society. And that's a really threatening thing. Uh, many Republican voters will tell you that they feel like the country being, that they grew up in is being taken away from them. That's a very threatening thing. That's not just disagreeing over tax policy or disagreeing over, your, uh, over health reform. This is feeling like the, your country is being taken from you. Um, and so that's, that's what I think the best scholarship on, that I've seen on, on American politics suggests is at the root of this polarization. Now, it's exacerbated by income inequality. If we, if we had policies in place um, that allowed for those who are losing their dominant social status had a future, their kids had a future, they had decent jobs, they could aspire to, to gain something in the years to come, I think they'd be less angry. They'd be less prone to the kind of nihilistic uh, attitudes that you pointed to. People like to find a, a scapegoat to blame, and that helps these authoritarians rise to power to exploit that hatred, the angst that uh, people are feeling about losing their country. So it's both social mobility, but also inequality. I mean, blue state elites um, are living in an utterly different world, right? Like here, we didn't really suffer the, the financial crisis of 2008, 2009. Our, our incomes continue to boom. We have, uh, you know, cultural tastes and material tastes that are completely out of line with the rest of the country. And, and that generates resentment as well. So that's another, mm -hmm. another element of inequality. Now, hopping to... Uh, another issue, in Canada, uh, we have an unelected Senate. Uh, it's become, over the years, a purely partisan appointment by the Prime Minister. Uh, and people are pushing in Canada to abolish this Senate or reform it and make it uh, responsive to the electorate, make it an elected body like in the U.S. And in the U.S., many people feel that the Electoral College, uh, for example, is undemocratic. Yet in your book, you defend the role of uh, unelected bodies as gatekeepers in, in defending democracy and keeping out authoritarians. And this seems counterintuitive. Could you expand on that, please? Well, we're not big fans of the Electoral College. Um, I think the Electoral College has become, it, it, the, the Electoral College served its design purpose for about four years in U.S. history. It almost immediately became a useless, essentially vestigial element, something that just 
existed but didn't really have a, a purpose and didn't wasn't very consequential either way but it's now become consequential um, because it is a distinctly counter-majoritarian and even anti-majoritarian institution this is I, I should be very clear this is not the Republican Party's fault but the Republican Party benefits enormously from the electoral college the electoral college is biased towards sparsely populated states um, it's a it's a slight bias, but it's a real bias. And um, for most of American history, that didn't matter because both parties had urban and rural wing. Both parties had um, among their base sparsely populated territory. Only in the last 20 years, really the last 10 or 15 years, the parties have become divided over uh, on the urban rural dimension. The, the Republicans are the party of sparsely populated territories and the Democrats are the party of the big cities. Um, the issue with that is it gives a, a multi-point advantage to the Republican Party in presidential elections. So it's now becoming, um, you know, there, there, is a, there is a pretty significant chance that Donald Trump loses the popular vote by a healthy margin this year and yet wins the presidency again. That is going to have uh, to deal a body blow to the le legitimacy of our electoral system. Mm -hmm. You'll see more of those nihilists in the streets. So the, the, the electoral college, I think, is, is, not the, is not the right gatekeeper. The gatekeeper that Ziblatt and I point to is political parties. Okay. And political parties are elected. Political parties put their candidates up for office. And the leaders of political parties, those who we argue ought to be selecting the candidates, are generally elected officials. So this is not some unelected body. Okay, good. But we do think that it is useful to have experienced politicians have a say in the selection of candidates. Uh, and in the past, you feel that this uh, selection of candidates by the elected party leaders has stopped authoritarians from getting candidacies and getting to the presidency like we have now. It's had a perfect record. Now, the, old, the, 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 the way that, that American parties selected candidates prior to 1972, basically the old smoke-filled back room in the convention had all sorts of serious problems. Um, it, was, it was not transparent. It wasn't very democratic. Turns out it wasn't very inclusionary either. It was you know, basically a bunch of uh, pretty well-connected white guys. And so there were, there were real limitations to the old system and it really did need to be reformed. But that system had a perfect record in keeping demagogues out. For better and worse, it had a perfect record in keeping out demagogues. Hmm. In, in part because these guys know the candidates. They know, um, you know, the closest parallels to, to Trump that we could find probably in, in U.S. history were um, Henry Ford, who was a, a very wealthy uh, kind of eccentric figure, very, very popular, especially in the Midwest, thought about running for president in, in 1924, but it became very clear that the parties were not going to nominate political party leads were not going to, to nominate him, for better or worse. He was you know, pretty anti-Semitic and, and dallied with, with fascist ideas, so I think it's a pretty good idea that he was not, that he was you know, effectively screened out. The other guy is uh, George Wallace, who came a little closer to the presidency than, than Henry Ford, um, but again, couldn't get near, had to run as a third-party candidate in eight mm. in order to, to compete, because he wasn't going to be able to get any major party nomination. So 
The U.S. has been a bastion of freedom and democracy for, for centuries, and many people feel that the U.S. Uh, could not be at risk of becoming autocratic, that it's special, that the Constitution, the way it's set up, uh, makes it uh, impossible for this to happen. What's, what's your feeling on this? Is the U.S. special? Um, the system is set up pretty well. The system is set up to, to prevent some failures, but not others, right? There are many ways to die. There are many ways to become dysfunctional. And uh, so our, our system is set up pretty brilliantly in, in a variety of ways, but it's not set up, for example, to deal with highly disciplined polarized parties. Our system of checks and balances cannot function well with two parties that are, are, are highly polarized and, uh, and, and purely disciplined. Because it's basically set up our, our system of, of, of two houses of Congress and the, the, the need to get legislation through the executive in both houses. It, it must be the case that the parties can either come together and compromise or that individual members of the parties float and, and cross the aisle. Uh, two highly polarized parties that, that can't get along, can't work together, cannot make a system of a U.S. style checks and balance system work. Now, your earlier point about is the U.S. special, is the U.S. sort of invulnerable? I think that's one of the dangers is that all of us, I mean, myself included, and I study this for a living, if you'd asked us five years ago, all of us took U.S. democracy for granted. We took the stability of U.S. democracy for granted. We figured that no matter how recklessly we voted, no matter how recklessly we behaved, no matter how recklessly our politicians behave, they couldn't possibly break American democracy. That seemed impossible. Um, and look, there's some social science behind that. The, it, we, think, we know two things in political science, at least empirically. Old democracies never die, and rich democracies never die. The, uh, the breakdown rate of both old and rich democracies is close to zero. But So the question is, are we in new terrain? And I think there's some reason to think that we are. I mean, levels of inequality, as you pointed out at the beginning, are higher than any time since before the Great Depression. Um, and this, this phenomenon that I pointed to of a once dominant ethnic majority losing its dominant status is also new and, and pretty unprecedented. There's not a democracy in history that's gone through that, that transition. So um, I actually think that we are in new terrain. I think there, there's nothing... You know, the United States is a, is, a, is a rich, powerful country with a pretty distinctive political culture, but there's nothing unique about the United States. All the patterns that we see in the U.S. can be found elsewhere. You mentioned in your book that several norms of the U.S. government system, uh, long-standing unwritten rules, have been violated recently by both parties. Um, the Republican governor of Georgia, for example, acted as chief elections officer in his own election. Is, is that even legal? So, and gerrymandering, you know, I learned in high school that that was uh, something that would, would not be allowed in a functioning democracy, and yet it seems to be common practice in the U.S. Uh, can you tell me, you know, where this is headed? Yeah, well, I, if I knew where this was headed, I would have a much better paying job, but... Um... <laughs> Look, the, the U.S. is, because it's such an old democracy, and because it's been stable for so long, and because we could take so much of it for granted, and because our parties weren't very polarized, 
And so therefore the stakes in politics were relatively low. We rely a ton on informal norms, or to put it another way, on, on the self-restraint of, politi of politicians. If you look at Brazilian democracy or German democracy or uh, really any democracy that, that was born in, uh, in the 20th or 21st century, they're likely to have a slew of rules, of formal rules that, that very clearly and formally constrain behavior that say elections are run like this and this and this, and politicians are allowed to do X and Y. They're not allowed to do Z, uh, Z, A, B. The U.S. doesn't have much of that. We have a very small, very short, limited constitution. Uh, we have a very decentralized polity, and we, we, we actually don't have a large number of rules stating you can't do that. And we have survived, and this is, um, this goes back a long way in history. Just to give one example, we, uh, it wasn't until the 1940s that we took seriously the idea of a formal two-term limit in the presidency. The, anybody could have been president for life, just like Hugo Chavez, until 1947. Um, but, but after George Washington, we went 150 years and no, no politician uh, went there and went for the third term. The point is that we, our system relies not on the rules that say you can't do this, but politicians restraining themselves. Um, you know, it, it's actually pretty easy to, you know, to, in, some, in some localities to stuff ballot boxes, uh, to, to commit fraud. We now know it's very easy to, um, to get away with all sorts of conflicts of interest in, in the presidency, to make a ton of money out of the presidency. We know that it's possible to pardon your friends. It's, it's, it's possible to have people do criminal work for you, and then you turn around and pardon them. Um, there's no rules against this stuff, uh, or the rules are ambiguous. We relied on self-restraint. And so all it took was, one, a highly polarized polity, which gets people into sort of a uh, um, any means necessary mentality, because you hate the other guys so much you're willing to pull out all the stops to beat them. So both, both parties are in this sort of win at all costs, any means necessary uh, mode of thinking. And secondly, a, a politician or an individual like Trump, who you know, never, never met a norm he wasn't willing to, to break. If, if there's one thing that characterizes Donald Trump, it's, the, it's an absence of self-restraint. And so you put somebody in power who doesn't give a crap about, uh, about norms, who, who does not restrain himself, who will use the letter of the law to the max whenever he can, and suddenly our system, which seemed to work so well for 200 plus years, looks like it's a mess. Hmm. Yeah. Wow. Uh, and you mentioned in your book uh, the Republicans uh, had violated a long-standing government norm by uh, blocking Obama's uh, right to appoint uh, a Supreme Court judge. Uh, and this had not happened before in the history of the United States. Um, it, it happened right after the Civil War. It hadn't happened okay. since 1860. Ah, okay. Uh, but the courts still seem independent. Um, you see that the uh, Trump's 2016 campaign team, for example, have all been indicted by courts. So this is a, a hopeful sign that they're, the courts are still willing to uh, stand up. Um, however, any significant challenges will now end up at a Supreme Court that's been stacked with Republican nominees. I can foresee electoral improprieties 
uh, in the upcoming election uh, being ignored by the top court? Is, is this likely? Uh, well, that, that's the big question. So, look, the U.S. has um, U.S. democracy is hard to kill, right? We're in, in we're sliding into crisis. We've experienced backsliding in, in some ways, but the United States still has a number of really strong institutions, federal institutions, and um, state agencies where we we still continue to have a number of professionals doing their job, uh, regardless of, of who appointed them. And as you pointed out, the courts, the judiciary continues to be highly professional and quite independent. Um, this is not to say that, you know, in, in four, eight or 12 years, this couldn't be eroded. But thus far, you're right. We still have a, a, a fair amount of judicial independence. Um, big question will come. We, we now have, it, it, there's now a perception, you know, among at least in half the country that we have a, um, a Supreme Court with a 5-4 majority that was effectively stolen. The, the, the court does not have the same legitimacy that it had, for example, in 2000, when we had an electoral dispute that was decided by, by the Supreme Court. Um, that was a, a ruling that for Democrats really sucked. It was, it was disputed. It was disputable. It may well have been the fact that, that there was a 5-4 conservative majority that it went to, to, to Bush. But Americans accepted that ruling in part because Al Gore accepted the ruling, um, but in part because it was still a pretty legitimate Supreme Court, conservative or not. The 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 way that that those nine individuals got there was widely viewed to be clean, legitimate, and so we all as a society accepted that ruling, even those those who didn't like it. I think 2020 is probably a different game. We, we're we're facing a situation where there's a good chance that one or more states will have disputes. There's a good chance that Trump will not behave like Gore, that he, that he won't accept defeat, that he'll claim fraud. There's a good chance it sends up in the courts because that's really, we don't, the U.S. doesn't have a set of um, established electoral authorities to deal at the, at the national level with electoral disputes. So it will end up in the court. What if it's a 5-4 ruling in favor of, of Trump? I don't know how legitimate that's going to appear. Now, you know, Roberts, to his credit, seems to take very seriously the the reputation and the integrity of the Supreme Court. He's obviously conservative, but um, his vote is not assured. So one could also imagine a dispute that ends up 5-4 in favor of Biden with uh, um, with Roberts joining the, the liberals. So um, it's certainly not a guarantee. This is not a, a court that is so packed that we know automatically in advance how to rule. But if there's a 5-4 ruling for Trump after this, after the, 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 the theft of Merrick Garland's seat or the seat that he was, that he was nominated for, um, that's going to be, that's going to be another body blow to the legitimacy of our, of our institutions. Again, our, our democracy will not die quickly. It's too, way too strong for that. Um, but we've suffered a series of blows over the last five years that have weakened it. And, um, you know, if we have a severe electoral crisis in 2020, which is entirely possible, that will be another, another major blow. Yeah, yeah. And now you see that the Republican regime are suggesting delaying elections because of COVID. Well, Trump said that. Uh, that, that seems less likely. <laughs> uh, good. Um, 
so we've seen the president uh, adopting a strategy to call into question the legitimacy of mail-in balloting, uh, to question the full electoral process, and to um, it seems to be obstructing uh, the U.S. Postal Service uh, to try and uh, suppress the vote effectively, uh, and this may be leading to another Supreme Court challenge. Uh, that's somewhat frightening. The, the situation that we see from Canada is, is, is scary. We see you know, uh, these protests uh, going on. We see violence. We see uh, secret police abducting political opponents in unmarked vehicles. Uh, we see norm-breaking and uh, anti-democratic signaling. If this were a small Central American country, the U.S. would be invading by now to restore order. As a Canadian, this is worrying. Should we invade? <laughs> Fine. <laughs> um, it's very worrisome. It's very worrisome. I think in you shouldn't invade because I think in the medium to long run, the prospects for to consolidate a dictatorship on either side are, are very low. I think that the Republicans, there's a good chance that they create a hell of a crisis in 2020. There's some chance, some chance that Trump is able to sort of steal this election broadly defined, particularly through the, the, the mail and the voting, the, the, the vote by mail process, right? If, if that gets difficult and there are a, it's, it's very clear, at least surveys show that Democrats are disproportionately the ones who are voting by mail and Republicans in person. So if 10% uh, or 15 or 20% of the ballots by mail end up not counting, they don't get there in time because the, the post office was slowed, they were prepared, they were ill-prepared to deal with the influx of, of ballots, they're, they're not filled out correctly, so they're discarded. And if, if we lose 10, 20% of the mail-in votes, which is possible, and, mail, and Democrats are overwhelmingly represented among mail-in votes, um, Biden could be ahead by six points on the day before the election lose, and lose the election. I mean, and, and, and there's nothing, there's no smoking gun illegality there either. Um, yeah. So there, there, there are scenarios where Trump could, even though he's clearly behind, let's say six, seven, eight points, somehow wins the election or retain presidency, um, which, which would put us in a, a borderline authoritarian situation in the short term. I think in the medium term, those guys, the Republicans don't have the distribution of power in American society doesn't favor them. Um, the, the military, unlike Latin America, the region that I study, the military is not going to weigh in on the, favor, on, on the side of the Republicans. Increasingly, the bulk of the most important, the most dynamic capital in the country is actually sympathetic to the Democrats. The, the numbers favor the Democrats. Most of the media is uh, at least not not particularly either independent or or uh, or more favorable to the Democrats. So it's that underlying balance of power makes a makes a scenario like Hungary or or Turkey or Venezuela or Russia really hard to fathom. Uh, there's just too much too many numbers, too much money, too much cultural capital, too much organization in the opposition. We have a very the Democrats may may not win the 2020 election but they are a very strong opposition by comparative standards, um, which I think means that we're, not, we're likely not headed into long-term dictatorship or, or fascism. What we may be headed into 
and which could affect Canadians is just dysfunctionality. I and mean, we, we're, we're not able to function. I mean, there nowhere is this clearer than in the response to COVID-19, right? We, our, our, our society and our government at the federal level couldn't deal. We just couldn't deal with COVID-19. We couldn't respond effectively. We're the only, really the only rich democracy on earth that couldn't respond minimally effectively to, to COVID-19. And so, you know, you guys share a big border with us. So our dysfunctionality may, um, no joking aside, may, may have real consequences. Indeed. Um, and you mentioned in your book that we should be on the lookout for a crisis that um, could be used to strengthen an authoritarian leader. Now, the COVID crisis would have seemed to be ideal for that, but it has not done that due to the fact that it was somewhat fumbled. Should we expect the government to, to foment a new crisis in the coming months before the election? There are, there are some very smart people in the United States who are worried about that, who are worried about uh, a, a, a war um, between now and November. Um, you know, one, one advantage we small D Democrats have in the case of Trump is he's not a very, um, he's a pretty inept autocrat. He, he's not very smart. He's not very experienced. He lacks anything in the way of discipline and he lacks organization. Um, you know, if we, if, tr if we had uh, Viktor Orban or uh, Erdogan or Putin or Hugo Chavez in the presidency of the United States, they would do much more damage, I think, than Trump. Yeah, I agree. He's not as scary as some of these other autocrats who inspire this blind, give your life kind of loyalty. I don't think, I don't think Trump's um, charisma goes that far. But he also he doesn't plan. He doesn't. He's not disciplined. He's never on message. Um, it's it's hard for him to develop and implement any kind of a plan or even a strategy. And I think um, that's weakened him. And I think that, and to, to the benefit of, of democracy. So I think that makes a, um, a well thought out planned crisis, which is a high risk strategy, right? It's a very risky strategy. I think it makes it less likely. Um, I think it's, it's gonna be hard for him without leaks, without mistakes to plan, let's say in a, a war in, in Iran. I think it's more likely that he'll try to create chaos uh, or allow, I mean, it, it's a phenomenon that I, that I call malign neglect. I mean, the, the, you're right, he didn't use COVID as an excuse like Orban did in Hungary to sort of to shut down Congress or to, to concentrate power. <laughs> or, or Trudeau in Canada. But he's allowed COVID to, to create crisis, right? I mean, um, you know, there may well be cities where the infection is rampant on election day and we rely in the United States on largely on retirees as volunteers to man the the the, the polling places in cities where the, where the where the infection is rampant. People aren't going to show up. They're they're going to have to close down polling places. This happened in some of the primaries. I think Trump is relying on we're, we call it Zivlat and I call it malign neglect. That a crisis hits, a number of steps need to be taken to protect people's health and to protect the vote, right? If we're going to vote, we need to prepare, we need to invest ahead of time to ensure that everybody can vote by mail in a pandemic or to ensure that people can vote safely in person. Um, the government presumably knew that 
and basically did nothing because they're betting on chaos. They're betting on a chaotic, low turnout election. I think that, and I think if there's any October surprise that Trump is going to try to pull off, it may be a vaccine, uh, a rollout of, of, of a vaccine. But there are people worried about a war. Mm-hmm. Now, you mentioned in your book that uh, the Republican Party is mainly responsible for uh, eroding the norms of democracy, uh, especially under Donald Trump. Um, yet you argue that the Democrats should be taking the high road and not uh, striking back in you know tit-for-tat fashion. Is this a road to recovery? We don't know. Um, it's, a, it's a tough question. We get a lot of pushback for that, that part of our, of our argument. The truth is, and I've actually I've talked to, to members of the opposition in, in a number of countries that are in similar places, similar situations, the opposition in, in Turkey, the opposition in Hungary, the opposition in Venezuela, the opposition in Peru, and Fukimori was in power in the 90s. When um, you have an elected leader or a, an elected party that breaks the rules and sort of takes the, is the first mover in stepping away from democracy, the opposition is left with a very difficult set of choices. A, a, a really, it's really in a, in a fundamentally in a lose-lose situation. So either you, um, you continue to play by the norms to, to, to protect the, the institutions and you get rolled, you get steamrolled, or you fight back, uh, you know, you put your boxing gloves on, you fight back, uh, maybe breaking the rules, maybe twisting the rules, maybe, uh, uh, using violence, civil disobedience, and two things can happen. One, that radicalism can be used as an excuse to crack down further, because remember, they're the guys with the guns, not you, um, or not, not, not us in opposition. And that happened in Venezuela. The, Venez the Venezuelan opposition, the very early, very first years of Chavez, before he'd even done much, uh, tried to, to organize a coup against him, tried to bring him down via mass mass protest, a general strike. They tried to just shut him down before he'd even uh, gotten halfway through his presidency. And that was an excuse for him to crack down, to accelerate the crackdown. The other thing that fighting back dirty uh, can do is just accelerate the process of, of decline. So if you've got a strong democracy that you could lose, that is still sort of hanging there and you could lose, fighting dirty could just accelerate the, the, the loss. And that's why Ziblatt and I thought, given the strength of, of U.S. institutions, given the, how difficult it is to rebuild those institutions once you lose them, as long as a, there's a viable institutional channel, courts, first of all, elections, secondly, that, that the opposition should use those channels. Um, it, we, we calculated, and I, I, I think it's still right. I mean, you, I may be proven wrong on November 4th, 2020. But our calculation was the Democrats still had a, that the, the least bad option is to play by the rules and win by the rules. And, um, and that avenue, that, that channel still existed, still exists in the United States. So if, if Biden wins the presidency and the Democrats win control of the Senate, um, that's not going to be a panacea for American democracy by a long shot. But um, that will, that will, be a major step towards resolving the, the imminent crisis of our democracy. And I think that 
that's still a viable option. As long as it's a viable option, the, the least bad strategy is to, is to, to play institutionally. So this has been a, a great discussion, um, but listeners out there are wondering, what can I do? I think, I think people want to know how can they help preserve the democracy. People don't want violence. People don't want uh, collapse of democracy. People don't like giving in to the autocrats. What can people safely do to preserve democracy and move forward respectfully? There are, are short and medium term answers to that. Um, and, and Americans have done a lot. I mean, it's, it's really worth pointing out that ever since that a, a lot has happened since 2016. Um, as as much as as from the from the perspective of the opposition, as much as Trump has gotten away with, he's also been um, stymied quite a bit. the The level of um, of activism and protest, not just the George Floyd protests, but, but before then, the, the level of organization, um, both electoral and non-electoral, has increased considerably since 2016. Many Americans have gotten involved in politics. They've joined groups uh, of, of various types and, uh, and become active, and it's had an impact. Uh, again, we are an electoral democracy, so the primary source of power continues to be elections. The 2018 election was a very important election. Um, it, it, it was a major setback for, for Trump. It gave the House to, to the opposition party. And m my colleague, Theda Scotchpole, has been studying uh, four communities in the heartland ever since 2016. And she finds particularly among middle-aged, middle-class women, a major upsurge in political participation, organizing, running campaigns, getting into politics, running for office, a big burst of energy. And so, Part of the answer is Americans are already doing it. They, they felt they were scared, they were, they were appalled, and they got involved. Secondly, obviously people have to vote. It's harder this year to vote because of the pandemic. It's harder to vote uh, because in many states, Republicans are, are, are making it harder to vote. But um, voting and making sure other people have the opportunity, the ability to vote is, is really critical. I think in the, in the medium term, the U.S. has to take steps to democratize the democracy. Um, we have to take steps to make it much, much easier to vote. The fact that, that less than half the country votes in midterm elections and, and maybe 57, 58 percent vote in presidential elections is abominable. And we've got we've to we've pass legislation that makes it much easier to register, much easier to vote, and that gives every American an equal opportunity to do that. So it's not just easier for people like me to vote than it is for people who say don't have a driver's license. That's an obvious step in terms of democracy. Broadly speaking, there are two coalitions in, in the United States that are, that are almost at war with one another. There is what Ron Brownstein calls a, a restorationist coalition, which is the uh, essentially the white Christian base that's losing its majority and, and is, and is um, uh, fighting tooth and nail to hold on to it. And there is what Brownstein calls a cosmopolitan coalition, which is this sort of weird conglomeration of everybody else. Uh, urban people, educated white folks, uh, secular voters, and uh, a, a wide range of non-white voters. And that coalition is a majority. It's, I, to be somewhat arbitrary, it's about 53% of the country. Um, 
can't, is having trouble winning national power because of the way that it's distributed geographically, because of the electoral system, because of the electoral college. Um, the, the, the courts are starting to, to, to be stacked against that cosmopolitan majority. But we, our democracy really requires that, we, that that majority come to power. And expanding voting, creating a situation where 75% of the country is voting rather than 55% would speed up that process, would, would enhance our ability to, um, to get to some semblance of majority rule. Right now, we're being governed by the 43% that Trumpism represents. Yeah, definitely. I, I like your point about uh, activating these groups that have previously not been active in the democratic process. That's really good that, you know, these people that have not been empowered are now waking up and getting involved. I think uh, one of my uh, tenets is that uh, the price of democracy is a well-informed and active populace. And if you're not doing that, then you're going to let your democracy go to whoever uh, is willing to mobilize the resources. And I'm also concerned that the reason that we're in this situation that we are and that we're, you know, we've gotten lazy and things have declined is that politicians have con have continually tried to grab power. And this is happening on both sides of the political spectrum. We have politicians that have demonized uh, expertise and knowledge and have demonized the press and have tried to control the message. And I think that's eroding one of the central pillars of democracy. So it's it's good and bad. It's It's good that people are becoming involved and it's bad that they're becoming involved because things seem to be going south on us. Yeah, um, and, and I mean you're right. We are we are suffering. This is one of the reasons why we failed so badly on the COVID nineteen front is the vilification of, of expertise. Um, but that is populism. That's classic populism. And the Republican Party has, under Trump, become even before Trump, but but under Trump, it has really consolidated itself as a populist party in the sense that it is an anti elite political party. It's a party that mobilizes people by railing against the elite. And the elite, uh, it, it can mean Wall Street, it can mean politicians, and it can mean experts, public health experts. It means college professors like me, or, uh, and it means journalists. And the Republican Party increasingly, its message is don't believe any of those guys. They're all out to get you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And which is dangerous, as you, as you pointed out. Yeah, um, this has been a, a really interesting discussion. I really appreciate you joining me here on The Rational View and uh, providing your expert feedback uh, on your book, How Democracies Die. Uh, thank you very much for joining me on the show, uh, Dr. Levitsky. And uh, do you have any uh, parting comments for our listeners? Uh, just tell the Canadians to hold off on their invasion at least till <laughs> November 3rd. Give us, give us one more chance. <laughs> uh, okay, I'll, I'll let the Prime Minister know to hold back. Uh, thank you again, Dr. Levitsky. Sure, it's great to, great to be on the, on the program. Take care. Thank you. Uh, that was Dr. Stephen Levitsky, uh, co-author of How Democracies Die. Thank you for listening to The Rational View.
If you're enjoying what you're hearing, please consider visiting my patron page and becoming a patron of this podcast at patron.podbean.com slash the rational view.